Hey there, and welcome to This Week in Fintech's new podcast, where we aim to get behind the curtain with some of our favorite fintech founders to hear their honest journeys of building their companies. I'm your host, Jillian Williams, partner at Cowboy Ventures. Today's episode is sponsored by Brex. Brex is a financial stack created for founders by founders that helps startups optimize their finances at every stage of growth. So you've got that first investor check in hand, but you need a place to put it to work. With Brex's business account, you can safely store, move, and grow that cash. And as your business scales, Brex corporate cards, reimbursements, and automated bill make life just that little bit easier. Founders, don't spend all day worrying about where your money is at. Get back to building when you use Brex, the financial stack that scales with you. To learn more, visit brex.com BTP. That's B-R-E-X dot BTP. Hi, everybody. Um, this week, we have Peter Hazelhurst on with us. So we are really excited to talk to him about his journey and the founding of Sintera. Uh, so Peter, thank you so much. And so to start off, I'd really love, um, I, was, I was looking at your LinkedIn and it seems like you've been around fintech for a while. Sadly, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, but Yodly, Google Payments, Uber Money. But then I think you've had some also really interesting experiences outside of it. I think uh, you had maybe you're CEO of a wine tasting company and then also Postmates, Nokia. Yeah. So I think the wine tasting company definitely sounds interesting. So I'd love to just hear more about your background and, and what spurred your love for FinTech. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've been doing this for ages. So anyway, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to sp- spend some time with you and chat and talk about building companies and ideas and so on. When I first came to the US a long time ago, 30 years ago, um, We started a banking software company called Phoenix and we built a core banking system on Windows, which was kind of the first one. And and back in those days, remember, Windows had just come out. There really wasn't an internet. I mean, theoretically, people had it, but the browser hadn't really even come out yet. So it was a long time ago. And building along that way, when you're ignorant of what you're building, it's actually a huge advantage because you don't understand the things that you're doing are theoretically impossible. So everyone said... The mainframe is here forever. People are going to keep using them. What are you doing? How can PCs do banking? It's not possible. And I didn't know what banking was, to be honest. At the start, I was like learning along the way. And I was just like, well, you've got customers. They've got deposit accounts. You've got loans. Yeah, I kind of, you know, you could sort of stitch it all together. But because we as a team were a combination of fearless and slightly ignorant of the challenges, we just built and it was great. I did that for a long time, for about seven years, and it was really fun. And the, the proof in the pudding is 30 years later, a big portion of the team still works there. We just did our 30th anniversary. People still sell the code that we built so much so long ago. And banks in the US still run the software we wrote way back then, which is kind of wild. In the meantime, I've sort of almost deliberately tried a path of counter-programming. I didn't move too far afield my second startup. It was small business accounting competing with what at the time was called NetLedger, which then became NetSuite. Then I did a retail supply chain logistics company in DC. Totally different. Didn't know anything about supply chain. Wanted to learn. And shelf space optimization, which is this whole mathematical problem of like, 
how much stuff, where do you, where does the inventory come from? And like the logistics of that, that was kind of different. Then I did mobile email, completely different, nothing at all to, related to fintech. And we did this great startup based in Pittsburgh. 20-ish people and we sold it to Nokia and then joining Nokia at the time was sort of like joining Apple today it's it was king of the world and we had so much fun inside the Nokia framework because we had this tiny little team that just grew and grew and grew inside Nokia as an enterprise and that was my first time with a big company which was kind of cool very different so startups versus big companies obviously huge transformative change then I went to Yodley and we spent seven years uh, pivoting that company, ironically, from software when I joined, which was for high net worth individuals, account management, and all that sort of stuff, think RIAs and so forth, to pure retail, uh, launching with Bank of America and my portfolio and so forth. And now it's ironically gone back to investment advisors. You know, these things have their own trajectory. So Yodley was kind of cool. It was uh, a really amazing process where we grew the team really fast. We got really good product market fit. It was perfectly timed, 2006. People were starting to do personal finance. We were, we were doing great. And we built like all of the APIs that everyone now uses from Plaid and others to do account verification and all of those sorts of things. It was pretty cool. Then Google. So it was, it was an oscillations startup to big company. And Google Payments and Google Wallet was, was really fun. It was super challenging because it's one of, again, one of these things where the tech didn't really exist yet. Pay with your phone. And how do you make it work? And how do you get everyone feeling like they're part of the process? And it was so funny. I remember when we were going and trying to teach uh, folks at various retailers and because no one knew what to do, like the actual end user. And you'd see these people trying to tap and pay their phone on the side and, and you're like, no, no, it's flat and, and explaining all this stuff. It was quite, quite fun building products that humans touch. And then a bunch more startups, uh, including a nonprofit for kids. Uh, and then my wine startup, which was so much fun. It was like the best job ever and so bummed that it didn't work out. Uh, but think of eight to 10 women getting together on a Thursday night and one of the, the women comes in to lead the experience of tasting and the, and it's try four bottles of wine, get on a subscription every month's a different theme. And so it's supply chain of sourcing alcohol, sourcing the wine. So it's not as glamorous as it sounds tasting 60 Chardonnays in two hours. It is it's just not, <laughs> and you can't drink because if you drink, you're dead. You can taste. And, and that's when you learn spitting because you literally can't do it. It's impossible. Uh, but it was so much fun. And then we did this great deal with Frederick Eklund in New York, who was the star of Million Dollar Listings New York. And we built him a wine and it was up and to the left, up and to the right, sorry. And, and then, the, then the market just changed and it was, it, was, it was tough. And so you learn, as, if not as much, uh, even more interesting things in winding down stuff as you do with growing stuff. Uh, then I went to Uber and Uber was fantastic. It was like the coolest program, cool, coolest project. It literally never stops 24 seven payments in every country and every possible interaction you could have. And then COVID and that wasn't much fun. And then fast and forward to starting Singtera. So I don't know, lots of lots of different things, but I would say I, I, I love the oscillation between big companies and, and creativity. Um, and so obviously I think Sinkterra is going to be a big company, uh, which would be great. So then I can stay on it the whole way through. Um, but, but you learn so much different things with teams around you, which tends to support you at big companies where 
it's you you tend to be in a silo and say I'm the payments team or I'm the banking team or whatever, versus just the horizontal your it's it's all on you type of stuff. It's so interesting that not only did you change quite a bit in terms of size, but also the sector and what you were even focused on. And so I guess, how did you decide that? What Was it opportunistic where I was like, oh, there's a really cool opportunity here. And all of a sudden someone talked to you about this pain point and you just were able to get up to speed really quickly in that space. Or did you have like discover that you had a passion in supply chain or then all of a sudden a passion in wine and kind of dive into that? So I definitely had a passion in wine. So that one was easy. Um, Part of it was serendipity. Part of it was serendipity. So the supply chain company was one of the few companies that got funded post dot uh, com, and so there was a little bit of like, okay, I I did a dot com, and it didn't work, and that's sad. But then on the other side of that was trying to do that. Part of it was career trajectory, trying to broaden like the the pool of investors that I was connected to, and starting in uh, in Florida where we did our first startup the investor community was pretty small. And so progressively moving up the East Coast and then pivoting and coming over to Silicon Valley in 2004 was a geographic footprint change in some ways. Part of it was trying not to be typecast as just the fintech person. And then invariably with fintech, unless you're direct to consumer, which is really hard, and unless you have a really big brand like Google and Google Wallet and that sort of stuff, doing other consumer-facing things where you actually touch and work with real humans is actually really profoundly gratifying. So working at Nokia was amazing because every day you're touching at the time, hundreds of millions, if not billions of users. And just a little thing like unlocking email on your phone can be something really valuable to a lot of people. I don't know if I consciously had a path and I said, I should do this one and then that one or anything. Part of it was um, today, the way I deal with it is I bounce it out by doing advice, advisory work or not advisory work. I hang out with cool people that maybe they think I can slightly give them some sort of thoughts that might be useful. Um, and I try as much as I can not to do that in fintech. Uh, Cause I feel like my day job is that. Yeah. You only do that outside of fintech. That's interesting though, because I feel like you could probably be most useful at least to others within fintech. I'll do that as my day job. So if they're a customer or a partner and that sort of stuff, I'll do that anyway. And there's a number of founders that I've helped there. But if I have to choose between so spending time with a cool team that's invented a thing to detect your posture while you're watching on your screen and help people stand taller at their desk and stuff like that, or another chime, sometimes it's nice to have a variety of different experiences. And it, I think ultimately it comes back down to founder dynamics and, and how, how, do they, how does the human connection between us work? as to the ones that I'm most excited to work with. Got it. That's great. And so I'd love to fast forward a little bit in terms of to 2020, sort of midst of COVID. I'll say like at that point, fintech was really starting to boom, and especially like the idea of embedded finance. I think like 2019 is really when everyone started writing about it. And then you kind of, and then you started Sinterra. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about the origin story and especially around how you and your co-founders met and what that looks like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, so we had a really fun thing going at Uber and part of the, the, the cool part of what we got to do is we went and ended up building a neobank for our drivers. We called it Uber money and things were going, uh, really successfully and the team was doing great. 
And we just done a big launch at Money 2020 in the in December or October of 2019. It was fantastic, super high. And then unfortunately, COVID happened, and Uber's business shrunk really fast. And and we made the right choice at the time, which was to uh, minimize all the the distractions and get to the core of rides and eats and so forth. And so it was pretty clear that. Um, if I wanted, if I still in my heart of hearts thought that that was a thing, the best way to achieve that would be to find a new vehicle to do it. And what, what, what was interesting about Uber is we had a lot of resources to build what at the time was a relatively complicated thing to build, building a neobank. And this, this idea in my head came along the lines of if we could package up all that we had learned in building it ourselves and build a platform then the next 10 Ubers that didn't have the resources that we had would be able to launch banking products for their customers as well. And that was sort of the genesis of it all. Coincidentally, at the time, there was a, a company being incubated that was ironically called Untangle. And, uh, and it was the code name of this company that was being incubated by Diagram out of Portage in Canada, which was at the time a compliance platform. And I was like, well... Compliance is fine. It's great, but it's not like super venture If you could build a broad uh, banking as a service platform on top of that and leverage and build this marketplace approach with banks and fintechs working together, that was kind of interesting. So I got involved through the incubator and, um, and Chris at the time and Dominic, my co-founder, Chris was uh, at Coho and also at Portage and Dominic uh, was helping a bank um, launch their first SAP core banking system in the US. And we were sort of connected up online in, I want to say July, August of last of 2020. And I was pretty clear that I was going to go do this, but it's in the heart of COVID. And, and I don't know, it was kind of weird. I couldn't think of starting a company without having physically met the people that I'm going to start the company with. Turned out I'd actually met Chris a couple of years before. Uh, he and I are part of a, a program to help the inmates at Pelican Bay, which is a supermax prison in Northern California, learn how to be entrepreneurs and non-gang-affiliated success, for example. Uh, but two years later, I kind of... And then I was like, oh, I've, we've met before. And yeah, we, and it was kind of cool. Dominic, I hadn't met. So we then said, all right, where can we meet that's the least COVID-y in America? So we, everyone at the time... Because there's no vaccine. So you're like, this is super risky. We ended up going to Boulder. And the downside of this was for Chris, who was based in Toronto, at the end of it, he was going to have to spend two weeks locked in a hotel room. I was going to say getting back to Canada would be the problem. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, but, but he did do that. And so we got together. We met. Uh, we had a glass of wine, champagne up on a mountaintop with no masks on. Crisis. And, um, and, that's, and then we were like, okay, we're we doing this. And we did. And that was... End of August, we started the company or really got going in September, fundraised and off to the races we went. That's great. And how did you guys think about, as you think about like sort of like the embedded, uh, the like embedded finance banking as a service space um, at the time and now, how did you guys think about like where you wanted to fit in that space? Just given it was, was, is like such a popular space. So many companies trying to address it just because of sort of that theme of, how many companies were going to offer some form of financial services. And I mean, given you came from 
Google and Google Payments and Uber, Uber Money, like kind of having that background itself and knowing what the big opportunity is. How did you think about sort of the broader potential competition around it as well? I think the strategy that we took, which was to really say, okay, if at the end, five years from now, whatever, we want to end up with something like Shopify or Stripe for banking, which means uh, a fully flexible marketplace approach where you could launch a neobank in three hours on one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum, a really rich set of APIs for the really complicated builders, the ones that want to customize and, and transform and build something special. Then what we would have to do is start with a nucleus, which ironically is the ledger, the core banking system that sits in the middle, and then build around that a set of services that would progressively take every column, if you will, of the pillars of the bank, of a traditional bank. And the challenge for that is finding investors that see the long term of this. Because you can't just do consumer deposits. It doesn't get you far enough. And then you, if you did only business deposits and you didn't have consumer deposits, that wouldn't be sufficient either. So there was a natural, easy transition there. As soon as you go up into the more complicated use cases, then people say, I want all these different payment methods. And so people are like, well, ACH is sufficient. No, it's not. Now I need cards. Then I need push to card. Then I need Fed now. Then I need real-time payments. And then we said, okay, well, we're going to abstract away account creation, account ownership, and all of that sort of stuff. So we partnered with SoCure on the consumer side and Middesk on the business side. And as soon as you do that, then you introduce other use cases, international users, shared accounts, and so on. And the, the thematics of investing in this category is it's expensive. And if you can't find the right folks to say, I understand where you're going, I understand there's going to be multiple checkpoints and it's almost a utility. So it takes, there's like a minimum amount of building that you have to do to be useful to most categories of the cap of the program. And you don't start to see breakout revenue until you get those building blocks built in. And then it's really quick. And so for the first two years, we would, we did a lot of building and, and getting customers to the first early stages. And it's in the last six to nine months that those customers have started to grow and start to be on the platform. And now it's, it's awesome. Now we've got like 20 live customers up from like six a year ago. And we have nine more going this month and 30 going next quarter. And, and that stuff's really exciting. Um, but now we have new problems. Like how do you scale up? How do you make sure every customer gets everything they want? How do you make sure the roadmap continues to evolve to support them? And the stakes get higher and higher. So now lending is a big part of a lot of uh, consumer and retail and small business fintech. And how do you build that? How do you make sure that it plugs into the platform in a natural way so that people can grow with you? So I would say like we spent a couple of days whiteboarding the end game. And then it's just been a question of how fast can we get there? And there's a little bit of tick and tie. So we, we got a lot of demand for international. So we spent a lot of time thinking about advanced compliance, monitoring, transaction support, and so on to keep the banks safe. But... I think the premise of how we decided to do this, where we wanted to matchmake fintechs to banks, was a much harder premise than anyone else had sort of really gone for. Most folks had said, I'm going to build you some APIs. Don't worry about the bank. It's hidden under the covers. You don't have to think about it. The problem is all the banks want relationships with the fintechs. The fintechs do too. And um, if you bring those relationships together, then you actually have to have a set of banks because not every bank will do every deal. And so then, then it was incumbent upon us to build out 
two-sided marketplace. And two-sided marketplaces are inherently harder than just supply-demand matchmaking. Um, but the upside of once you get it right is we, we reduce the risk of any one particular program. We give the customers the choice of what sort of banks do they like to work with. And, and it really became a differentiator for us. Absolutely. And I want, I want to come back to the hiring growth of the team. But as we're kind of talking about the product roadmap and the customers a little bit more, how has it been different in terms of whether it's who you're targeting and the dynamics with the customers, whether it's more on the fintech side or the banks uh, over the last three years, maybe in the first year and a half where especially fintech, like money was going into the fintech companies, like the banks were doing, were doing extremely well. And then the last year, a lot of those dynamics have changed. And so have you seen that play into your relationship with your customers um, and maybe like sort of their dynamics with their end customers? Um, have you seen that kind of, have you seen that play out to have impacts on you as well? Very much so. I think, um, so we came to market in money 2020 at the end of October 2020. Um, and our goal coming to market was to get a whole bunch of early stage startups to test. Try the APIs in different ways, shapes and forms. Test is it going to work. Um, and what I, we chose to avoid doing is bank a big fintech or bank a big commercial enterprise customer. Because the risk of getting it wrong was too high. So we chose... To go early, and we made it pretty much pay as you go. It was pretty easy. It wasn't high stress. And, um, and that allowed us to do a bunch of testing. Very quickly, we realized um, the cost of onboarding a, a really early stage fintech was kind of the same as the cost of onboarding a well-established one. Um, so then the question was, how do you get confidence to go upstream? And how, do, how does the fintech get confidence? How does the customer feel that you've evolved into it? Part of that happened by us raising prices and starting to charge a setup fee and minimums in Q2 of last year. And, and we were like quite happy that we ended up signing five deals and booking a bunch of committed revenue for the first time. And nothing like committed revenue. It's like people actually saying, I will pay you. It's kind of nice. Um, and, and so that led us to conclude that the, the, Maturity of the company was coming along in a nice enough way that we could um, start to look at longer-term relationships. So we've previously just been doing one-year deals, and we decided let's try two-year deals and see if there's any friction with that. And paradoxically, or somewhat awesomely, we uh, ended up finding out Q3 was a really great quarter for us last year. So when the market was not doing so well, um, we actually were okay. And we, we banked about 17 new fintech or customer relationships. And what was quickly transforming is that the customers themselves were going from seed and pre-seed funded to A's and B's. And then by the end of the year, B's and C's. And then over the weekend, I think I just did my first Series D funded startup. And that changes the whole dynamic of how you think about execution and expectations and uh, we've tried as best we can to match our project management skills and our go-to-market skills to our customers. But it's only been a year of transformation. It's really quite dramatically quick. And now I would say the majority of our deals are two- and three-year commitments with significantly high minimums 
that show that the customer has the ability to pay and wants to do something significant and, and serious with us. The demand curve still has early stage folks showing up, but we've chosen uh, at the moment to sort of set the bar a little higher uh, so that we keep our banks um, getting the right sort of demand and that the, the, the expectations of the customers is now higher. So we expect them to have a fractional or even a full-time chief compliance officer, which a year ago no one would have ever said out loud. And the goals of our marketplace have become such that our banks are expecting bigger and bigger, de- bigger deals, which is great. And, and these things are pretty symbiotic. As the banks get more capability and more comfort and confidence, they want bigger and bigger deals too. And it's just this constant bouncing act. I would say the other thing that's been really interesting on the demand side or the marketplace in general is um, there's been a, a, what I'll call a, a fairly healthy uh, adjustment in terms of folks that are in the market that we compete with. And I think, um, and I think it's, been, it's been quite tough for some fintechs that have been partnered up that find their provider isn't available anymore or the bank that they're working with isn't available anymore. And, and I don't wish any ill will on anybody, but I think what's happening now is the marketplace is, is becoming more concentrated in terms of partners, folks like us. And that builds a lot more confidence. Um, and as the deals get bigger, the expectations get higher and everyone looks back and says, what's your usage? And our usage is growing at 30% a month, which is great. At some point that'll curve to 20%. But in the meantime, we're learning a lot as we go along and th- dealing with the inevitable fraud and platform attacks and all the rest of it. Absolutely. God, that's super helpful. Uh, and so, yeah, maybe going back to the hiring side now, you said something that stood out to me, which made complete sense, was that you didn't want to start Sintera until you had met your co-founders in person. And so as you thought about building, especially the early team of Sintera, how did that or did that translate into your first key hires? And like, what was that culture you were building early on, especially during COVID when like a lot of teams were remote, people were hiring people wherever. And for the first few years, like people were hiring so quickly that um, I think they were honestly probably hiring maybe some quality that was probably less than what they should have been. And so I guess just curious in terms of especially the first hires, but then how, um, what, how you've continued to develop the culture and growth of the team over time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So look, I, I worked at two of the most in-person-y companies you could imagine, Google and Uber. And the, the day I got kicked out of my office slash desk at 1455 Market and said, go work from home, my brain was exploding. I'm like, how's this going to work? I, I mean, we had so much Zoom stuff happening at Uber anyway because no one could go up and down the building. It was quicker just to be on Zoom. Um, but, and thank you, Square Cash App people that blocked half the elevators, but bygones, it's all good. We have our own office now. Um, but it was weird. Like, I was like, is, how am I going to do this? I'm moderately extroverted in case you haven't noticed. And, um, and I get vibes, I get energy from being human and being connected. And I was like, really worried about it. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. But we took a very deliberate approach and said, 
certainly at the early stages. Everybody has to participate in the recruiting process. We were every single day, five days a week, 30 minutes stand up, the whole company until we got to like 30 people or something. And then there wasn't enough minutes that you could, everybody could say something useful. Uh, so we went to three times a week. Uh, one of the things I've done so far is uh, we have a pretty good recruiting process. It, it works great. And uh, we're finding amazing talent. And the teams will meet and they'll uh, do one-on-ones and then we'll do a jam session where the person has to, on Zoom, be like they're in the team. And it's because we found, like I found, that there are some people that are awesome in one-on-one on Zoom and not great in group. And then there's other people that are great in group but terrible in one-on-one. And because we're never going to be in person all the time, you have to be good in both. It's, you just have to. So we interview and we find people based on that. And then when it's all said and done, the team's double thumbs up across the board. I'll meet every candidate as the final checkpoint. Yeah, I've met every single candidate, uh, including contractors, including temps, every single one. Because I want to create an opportunity for those people that we're meeting to know that this is a human place. We care about who you are and what you do. I want to make sure that they have an opportunity to tell me how the process went and sort of help improve things as we go. And then I want to be that last checkpoint to say, are we building this awesome complementary team of really interesting and different people and not just hiring the people we know? Because it's super easy to just say, I'm just going to hire the last five people I ever worked with. In COVID or when you can't meet in person, there's an sort of an inherent bias of wanting to work with people you've worked with before. So you don't have to rebuild that trust. But I think we've done a pretty good job. I wouldn't say it's perfect of creating a framework where people can collaborate and work together once a year. And hopefully with, after our series B twice a year, we'll get together as a whole team. So we had this amazing thing uh, four weeks ago, I guess in Montreal, we had everybody come together. It was kind of awesome. Half the people had never met each other in person, which was great. And I'm committed to connecting humans together, but in a way that feels natural and, and, and not prescriptive. So everyone gets a WeWork badge, uh, which is great. So if you, if, if you don't want to be at home and you want to work in a WeWork all day, every day, by all means, go. And the nice thing about WeWork is because we're in so many different cities, it's consistent. Everyone gets the same experience. It's not like, you know, the sort of the, the golden ha- headquarters versus the antipodes in the field type of stuff. Everybody's got the same experience. And we encourage folks, if they can, shop on a Wednesday because then other people might be there. Not because I want you to have a meeting there, but if you actually like the idea of seeing other humans, if you at least agree on one day a week when that might occur, the probability of overlap is higher. Burden on the leadership team is a fair now more travel than probably is normal for a company of our stage. Uh, so I'm traveling quite a lot uh, to meet with the team and so on. But building that human connection through COVID was very much a principle of like how we thought we were going to be. And I have no intention of us saying, hey, I've changed my mind, everyone who moved to San Francisco. I don't think it would work. I don't think we need it. And I think we're better off without it because we can find much more interesting people by not saying everyone has to be in San Francisco or New York or Toronto. Were there any early hires that you really wanted that you, for one reason or another, were not able to convince to join? We always have 
I think some of our portfolio companies, for example, we tell them to like pick their dream people and just like maybe form relationships, even if maybe they can't get them at that time, form relationships. And then hopefully maybe it's a timing thing and later on they can join them. Um, but was there, have there been any people that like early on you weren't able to get, but kind of you still have them on your, oh, I'd love for them to join Sentara at some point. So I would say uh, definitely yes. And there's some people we got to offers and they said, no, too risky. I'm going to go to the next job. And I'm like, you got all the way to an offer and you're thinking it's a risk conversation. Something else is in your head. But I would say a founder's job, CEO's job, whatever, is basically fundraising and talent and a little bit of product vision. And if you're a product PM, CEO type of person like me, maybe a bit more on the product side. Got to pay, make payroll. You've got to have someone to pay and you've got to know what you're going to build. So I spend, I don't know, a third of my day on LinkedIn, like constantly adding more people to my network, trying to find the interconnectedness. And you'd be surprised. It's, it's a constant triage of how does this person know that person? When a new founder comes to us and says they want to build on our platform, I'm like, have I met that person before? How, who, do, who do I know and how do I connect to them? And it's, in many ways, it's like the, the venture game as well. It's like, it's, 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 I think it's fairly understood that you're always raising. There's no like, oh, I finished. It's like, that doesn't exist. Uh, and that same dynamic of continuously meeting and, and working with really great investors, even if you know that they'll never invest in you, is still actually helpful because it builds this network effect of when you find that other company that they in fact invested in, you can reach out to them. We had a really amazing startup come to us over the last couple of weeks. And I was, I was like, all right, who do I know? And I just like, I randomly hit up their lead investor at one of the big funds. And we had a nice, great conversation. And I was like, that's priceless. And I was like, are you ever going to invest? He's like, no. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And people are the same. Like the thing about startups and, and this phase is this, this, you, you get to plateaus of build where the company, there's this magic plateau of like 100 to 200 people. And it's quite hard to break out of it. We're at like 120 people. And there are a bunch of folks that are really awesome in different phases that then either say, I don't like the next phase or I want to grow in a different direction. And so you, as a, the talent person, that's part of my gig, you're always looking at like, other people you have wanting to go to the next stage or are they quite content? And if, if they are content, what sort of role will they have next inside the company? Cause we don't want to make it everybody have to leave or anything like that. It's not the goal. We want to have trajectories that are interesting, but sometimes you end up in a place where there's no more trajectory for this person. And I've had this happen a lot of times in my career and you have this really fun conversation, which at the start, the person feels like you're firing them. I'm like, not firing you. This is, this is me saying, go do something else for two years and come back. And, they, and the first few times you do it, they don't believe you. And once you've had enough of a cohort, you can say, hey, go talk to that person. Promise you that you can come back. The boomerang is real. And what happens is you end up with this talent pool that inside your network grows at a certain pace. But when you extend their network to somewhere else, they actually grow faster. And then when they come back, they're completely different and transformed and really valuable. So growing teams is, I don't know, it's con constant. You're always meeting, you're always networking. Um, 
just like fundraising. It's kind of the same. Yeah. I, I think that's what, especially when we are looking at potential founders to be investing into, I think that's something we always say is that the founder is always selling in a way in terms of selling to investors, but then also selling that vision and that idea to your team, to potential team members, um, but really just kind of selling that idea to the team and to potential um, team members as well. Uh, and so that's something that we say constantly. Yeah, I would say like like half of the folks that I've been talking to in this recent funding round, I know it's not the right size for them. I know that they're a Series C or Series D investor, but it's a 12 to 24-month pre-seed or seedling of the process of relationship building that gets them confident of, hey, I remember I talked to you two years ago. And, okay, you kind of did what you said you were going to do. That's great. Now you've got some incremental confidence and so on. And people are the same. Like, there are a number of people that I spoke to at the start of Sinterra. I'm like, I'm just saying hi. I'll see you again in two years or something. But right now it's just hello and we're doing this fun thing. And if you want to invest, I'll take 50 grand from you. But otherwise you know, follow along and we'll see if we've got a journey that's going to be interesting for you later. Yeah, completely agree. And so uh, what has been, do you think, the hardest moment or challenge to date in this journey? Hmm. I would say turning on that first transaction was pretty hard. And it was like, like we were running around, we had theoretically built stuff and we kind of knew it probably was going to work. And we had two early fintechs that got all the way to the finish line and then flamed out. So they didn't launch. And that was like, oh my God. And you can imagine like the whole company's excited. We're going to go into the, into the new year with the first customer. And then it's like, oh, didn't start. Um, those first two or three customers, getting them up and running and navigating the inevitable bugs and things that they discovered, um, that was pretty hard. And and now we're in a different variation of that, which is lots of customers at the same time, uh, which is great. I'm not begrudging that problem. I think it, it's a good problem to have. But it's, it's pushing us and pulling us in, in interesting ways. And um, I think one of the core assets or attributes uh, for people in this phase of a company is resilience. And being able to win some today, lose one tomorrow, come back the next day and say, yeah, I'm back in the saddle. Everything's okay. Cause it's, it's always, it's a little bit oscillating. And as you get bigger, you're trying to reduce the beta on the oscillation so that, and I'm doing a visual thing for a podcast. Sorry. Uh, this is me with my hands wide, like a sine wave going zigzag, zigzag. But anyway, you can, yeah, thanks. Uh, but the, but our goal as we get more mature is to make uh, it more predictable. The more predictable you get, the less crazy people want to join because they're like, I don't, I like the unpredictable. And so then you're having to sort of create verticals of new business areas like we did with lending and so on. Um, but I think, yeah, that first few customers, that was pretty hard. It was pretty stressful. And I know I was pretty stressed. I was like, Hey, we've just been building for 18 months. Is this, did we make it up? Or are we, is it real? It, it was, it was hard. And what has surprised you most about this founder journey? I would say the most interesting part about this founder journey uh, or the most challenging part, whatever, is this constant sense of um, being that evangelist, creating that momentum, creating that energy while double checking, can you make payroll and can you 
do you have the resources that you're you're committing the company to X? Can you actually deliver X and balancing that? And then trying to find people that have been through this journey before to compare notes because it's deceptively small number of people that um, do this crazy founder stuff. And um, there really aren't very great forums for sharing what's going on in your head and sort of continuously trying to push through when a customer says, oh, I don't like what you built for me or I'm not paying my minimums for 60 days because it's, I'm delayed. And you're like, oh, all right, okay. Um, but and, and then I'm like going to my investors, hey, they pushed by 60 days and like, but Peter, you said you, you got it locked in. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I would love to be able to control every vector. And so I, I would say that's on the hard side. On the other side of the equation, what's been really great about this process is building such a wonderful team. And, um, and it's kind of weird when you're starting, when it's like five people, you're like, you know everybody, you know everything about them. And because uh, you're talking to each other every day and Slack is manageable. At 50 people, it gets a little unmanageable. At 100, it's really hard. Um, and building a team where people care about each other and honestly want to support each other achieving their goals um, has been really great and really profoundly satisfying. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot of more interesting hiring to do over time. But I really love the fact that we can get together and hang out, build great things and support each other along the way because inevitably shit's going to break and how we react in those challenges is what's really sets our team up for success and helps them navigate through those periods of stress and resiliency that they need to get better at over time. Great. And then maybe two last quick questions. One is like, when was the first time or moment that you felt like you were on to something um, or that it was working and clicking? Um, and then the last is if you weren't doing this, building Sentara, what would you be doing? Ah, fair enough. So on the, the clicking moment was when uh, significant um, major investors came to us and said, I have one of my companies and I want them to work with you. That was like un- unsolicited, like person X from major investor Y says, hey, Peter, I have this great portfolio company. They've looked around and we've done a bit of homework and we're not working together. We're not an investor in you, Singtera. Would you be willing? And, it, and it's, it's really awesome. Like they're asking permission to, to, for me to meet a new customer. I'm like, you don't have to ask permission. Just send them along. I'll take everyone. Um, but it, it was so profoundly gratifying that we'd gone from an experiment, from a, a hypothetical into something that people were validating externally uh, that it was great. So that, that for me would be the tipping point. Then if I wasn't doing this, hmm, uh, probably, you know, so the end state for me is conducting big band jazz at Juilliard. That's the game. Yeah. yeah. Big into music. And so five years from now, 10 years from now, whatever investment theory I have to satisfy for our LPs. Um, yeah. Sign me up. Kids are 18 in six years' time. Move to New York. Go to music school. And 
start my own big band jazz orchestra. It'd be great. Super fun. Amazing. I think that might be my favorite answer. I love that. <laughs> well, perfect. Thank you so much, Peter, for sharing, for sharing your story and giving us this uh, insight into Sectera. I really appreciate the time. Amazing. I really enjoyed it too. And thank you for doing this. I think hopefully this will help some other founders on their journeys. 